Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello, I'm Amanda Carpenter, and for the second programme in our series on biodiversity and habitats, I've come out to rural Suffolk to talk to an entrepreneur turned farmer, William Kendall. William's credited with transforming New Covent Garden Soup Company and one of the most favourite foodstuffs in our house, Green and Black's Chocolate. He's also chairman of Corston Press, and he sits on the board of Client Earth, so we felt William was the man to talk to when it comes to spotting a trend or two. Hello, William. Thanks so much for joining Planet Pod. Thank you very much for inviting me. As you probably know, we're fairly passionate about the environment at the podcast. And we spend quite a lot of time talking to farmers, food producers, food manufacturers, really everyone in that supply chain, as well as to a range of environmentalists. So obviously we've chatted to friends about rewilding and we've talked about alternative forms of of food and manufacture. But I guess what I'd like to get from you is a kind of overview of where we are in the farming process. So can I start by asking you, why did you swap chocolate for farming? Well, I never really uh, went out of farming. I, I grew up on a farm um, in Bedfordshire and I spent you know, every minute that I wasn't at school farming um, and you know, it was just a way of life. Um, I suppose I was, a, I was an environmentalist alongside being a farmer at a time when being an environmentalist was probably quite an endangered species. My mother claims that I could name all the wildflowers around us before I could save very much else. Um, I'm not sure if it's true. And by the time I could prove it, I, I'd forgotten them all. There weren't any wildflowers anyway. They'd all been sprayed. So I, you know, I chained myself to a hedge um, that someone was pulling out on the farm in my, in my teens in the 70s when that was what was going on. But, I, you know, I drove a combine and I worked in the harvest and, you know, I, 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 I drank deep the, the cultural importance of farming. I, I grew up in an agricultural village where nearly everybody had some connection with farming and it, it was very important to me. So I only really left farming because there were plenty of cousins who were already on the farm. I couldn't really see a role for me. I probably didn't fancy the endless rows at a time when farming was going in a direction that instinctively felt wrong to me. And so I went into business I went and did an MBA and became a food entrepreneur and you know, did Covent Garden Soup and Green and Blacks, as you've, as you've suggested. But, but meanwhile, at university, I met, a, I met a girl who'd inherited a farm in Suffolk, and that's why I'm now in Suffolk. She, she'd grown up in London, and not that I was a very expert farmer, and I was a deeply flawed one by the standards of the time, but I knew a lot more about farming than she did, and that was all that mattered. And so I, got, I came back to it quite early on, long before we moved full-time back to Suffolk. So farming's in your blood, and it sounds as if farming in a more empathetic, natural way, if I say, more in in tune with the land, perhaps because you're an organic farmer here, is is what you've always wanted to do. Um, Where do you feel we're going wrong generally with farming? Because, I mean, we all know that that food manufacturing and farming generally creates probably a significant part of our carbon emissions you know, destruction of large parts of the rainforest to grow enough grain to feed the cattle that then feed us is a deeply um, unproductive way of producing food, uneconomic and, 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 and resource intense. Where Where is farming going wrong if it is? Well, 
Gosh, I mean, did it take one wrong turn a hundred years ago or did it take a wrong turn 10,000 years ago by starting to plough and emitting carbon? You know, some people say the Sahara, well, it certainly wasn't there before, was it? And maybe the Sahara was caused by ancient farmers ploughing up the southern Mediterranean. I, I, don't, I don't know, it's such a big question. I mean, clearly the experiment with chemical farming, and I'm not anti-chemicals, I'm just anti the particular type of chemicals that we've used over the last hundred years, has been have been disastrous for the, for 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 humans for for biodiversity and and for the planet and um and so this sort of addiction to um you know to, to, to cheap fertilizers produced from from gas and then the chemicals that we then need to treat the to treat treat the symptoms that that are produced by dosing chemi- crops with those fertilizers has caused many many problems um, so that's probably the biggest problem. I think the other problem is probably, and this does, does go back further, is, is this sort of sense that land that's not producing food is wasted land. And so for a long time, that wasn't a major threat to us and to the planet because a lot of land was, was unavailable. It, we didn't have the power to rip it up. And so our forefathers in farming learned how to get good productivity. They learned about fertility and they learned to get a lot out of a relatively small area of soil. But then we learnt how to develop power and we ripped up the prairies and we ripped up the rainforests. And, and, and I think there is still this sense, well, there was until recently still this sense that any land that's not producing food is wasted land. And now we have been told, quite rightly, that there is another thing we have to worry about, which is biodiversity. And it is very, very clear that most biodiversity, most species do not thrive in farmland. And that's, you know, that's an unpopular thing to say around here because, you know, some of my fellow organic farmers think that if you farm benignly, then you will support a lot of biodiversity. Well, yes, maybe you will. And and probably in in the UK, where we farm for so long, there are many species that we worry about which do perfectly well in a benign system of farming. But around the planet, most species that we worry about don't enjoy farming and farmers. So we need to learn how to farm in a much more concentrated way. We need to be less wasteful um, about what we produce and we need to be much more wasteful about the land we use for production. And there's an essential problem, isn't there? We spent, you know, I mean, I remember the kind of agri-barons of the 70s and I remember the, you know, the thousand-acre fields and the endless ploughing and combining and, and and yet we've wasted, we waste so much of what we produce. So that's the first thing. We're, we're, we're producing food inefficiently and then the food gets out into the supply chain and is wasted. So there's waste between field and fork, we know that. But also there's, a, there's an essential problem in that, that you know, we've still got a large part of our, of our globe, and certainly now in the UK, a significant part of our population that's going hungry. So we've got food poverty, and you know, yet we're producing, mass-producing food. So, so that's quite a difficult circle to square, isn't it, to actually change the way that... Because you've been talking about farming in a way that's less intensive, farming in a way that's close to nature, and we all know that we need to do that. We know we need to increase biodiversity. But if we do that, surely that in turn will then make food more expensive. And those members of our community who are now experiencing food poverty will be even worse off. So there's some quite difficult pulls, aren't there, in different directions in this conversation? Well, there, there are. It is very difficult. And, and, um, and so to answer that question... Um, simply is is very difficult. I mean, I I don't believe that most people going hungry 
are going hungry because of the way we farm now and the way we might farm in the future. I think most people hungry, certainly in the West, are, are hungry for all sorts of other social and cultural reasons. I mean, if, if you go to areas where, um, you know, the, the, the poorest postcodes, where the most disadvantaged live, you don't find very easy access to food apart from the food banks. The, the supermarkets, funnily enough, don't tend to build them, build there because they want to have access to middle-class affluent customers. And so, you know, if, they, if, they want to, if people living there want to buy food and they're not very resourceful or they don't have the skills or the, or the understanding of, of, of cooking with basic ingredients, um, it's, it's really difficult for them. But I don't think that's anything to do with farming. But of course, in the short term, if you have shocks to the supply chain, all other things being equal, the price of food goes up. And so everyone says, oh, that's going to be disastrous for the poorest people. Well, it is in the short term, but it's not why, in my view, it's not why people are going short. And we live in a crazy world where there are more people now who are obese than people who are starving. Um, somebody told me uh, a statistic, and I've got no reason to doubt it, the, the entire profitability of the American food and farming system is less than the cost to America of dietary, diet-related diseases. So, I mean, yes, we should be worrying about these things, but we should be worrying much more about the sort of food we eat and, 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 and how people use it. So, but it's complex. It's complex. So it's not a production problem. It's a distribution problem. And it's a social problem that we know, obviously we know, and it's related to, to other areas of socioeconomic disadvantage. And you know, we all know that if you live in a, in a poor area, you're less likely to have access to, to, to a wide choice of foodstuffs and you're less likely to have access to a main supermarket, which means you're buying from convenience stores and you're relying on ready meals. So, so we know that there's a complex social problem underlying this. But, but part of the pushback, I think, that's happening at the moment is that you know, the price of food is going up and everybody's saying, oh, the price of food's going up. You know, we need we need cheaper food. And we've been focusing on cheap food for such a long time, haven't we? We've actually skewed the whole production system. So, you know, the sort of two pound chicken is 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 a nonsense. Um, so if we're going to, to step back a bit and think about remodeling our system, rethinking our system, what are some of the things that that we need to think about? I mean, I know you're a great advocate for regenerative agriculture. What, what, what does that mean? What does that look like for how we might produce food in the future? Well, I mean, I am a great advocate for regenerative agriculture, part, part, partly because, you know, we went down the, the route of being organic, going organic about 25 years ago, and it's been really, really hard. And if I'd known about regenerative agriculture, if it had existed, well, of course it existed as a concept, it's existed as long as we've been farming in many ways. But if I'd known about it and if it had been as well articulated then as now, I wouldn't have gone organic. We wouldn't have gone organic. We would have aimed to get to organic, but we wouldn't have seen it as a first step because it's been, it's been hell. And, and, um, <laughs> and you know, I mean, I, I, I use, and it's probably a rather clumsy analogy, I use the analogy of, you know, of, 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 of taking a, a somebody off their drugs and then telling them to run a marathon the next day and being surprised that they fall flat on their face in the first mile because that's what it's like going organic. Going into regenerative agriculture, where you gradually wean yourself off a system of addiction and dependency, um, is, 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 makes way more sense for me. And, but, you know, if by, by practicing regenerative farming methods, you are showing respect for the soil, and increasingly you ask more and more questions about why, you, why would you put fungicide on, on a crop 
when the, the fungus in the soil is all important? How you know what, why why are the two sort of working in harmony? Well, they they're almost certainly not. Mm. So I think you end up being an organic farmer at the end of it. So that's um. That's, so what's the essential difference for those who don't know the difference between organic and regenerative? Well, as I say, I, I mean you don't have to end up as an organic farmer, but to me it, it would be absurd. To me, it would be absurd. Some people choose not to go the whole way, not to to want to aim to that. But you 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 can start by saying, I don't want to disturb the soil very much. I don't want to plough it. I don't want to cultivate, deep cultivate. And, and you may just do that entirely for, for cost reasons. You may say, well, I just want to use less steel, less, less diesel. And that's why most m- many more farmers are going down this route than have ever chosen to go organic. And that's what's so exciting about it. It's for somebody who is always looking for areas which we have in common with our supp- supposed opponents, I found being an organic farmer really quite confrontational. You know, there's an implied criticism about what you were doing. And so to be a regenerative farmer, you find that you're in a much bigger tent. In fact, there are very few people who are excluded from it. And so it's much easier to have those conversations. And so one goes to um, conferences like the Brilliant Groundswell and you find, you know, most of the farmers that you've grown up with all there and all sort of agreeing with you. And at that point, if there's somebody perhaps from the extreme wing of the organic movement and somebody from the extreme wing of the big tractor movement in the same tent very quickly they discover that they're pretty much on the same side and you know vigorously disagreeing over about two percent of policy to me that's a much more exciting place for the industry to be yeah absolutely and, and i think the, you know the no plow example is a really good one because you know most of the farmers that that, that i know most of the farmers we've spoken to on the, the, the pod recently have been no plow farmers even if they've been in inverted commas more traditional so so how can we how can we better explain all of that to our policy makers and to our decision makers because it you know whenever i talk to anybody who 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 works on the land or lives close to the land or has a farm of whatever size i hear the same things that you're saying and these you know we've always known that that at their best farmers are custodians of the the soil and earth and they want to pass it on and they care about the 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 biodiversity on their doorstep um but there's there's a breakdown in the system, isn't there? There's a breakdown in the, the in what's happening on the ground and what people are asking for, and some of the policy decisions and some of the financial decisions. So how do we how do we get those messages across to the people who need to hear them? Do you think? Well, I think I think the message has been received loud and clear by the by the policy makers. I think you know the Secretary of State George Eustace, a farmer himself. You know, whenever I hear him speak, and I've known him you know a lot a long time, I, I, he seems to have accepted that regenerative agriculture is a good thing and I think he's been to visit um, plenty of farms where it's really working so this isn't something that um, would be nice to do and it needs a lot of extra subsidy to make it happen because it's good for biodiversity and it's good for the planet I think you know he accepts that um, it is a good thing and there are plenty of farmers now and there will be many more who are practicing regenerative agriculture around the country who are saying it's going to be better for their bottom line. You know, I know farmers who've gone into it, seriously, gone into it, but, you know, have invested properly in it and have invested in understanding what it takes and are already seeing financial benefits from doing it. I don't know many organic farmers that went into it in the first few years and said, I've, I've, I've made a killing out of it. I mean, maybe a few dairy farmers when the price has worked in their favour, but on the whole, most organic farmers have sort of done it for, for, for love and idealism. But regenerative agriculture, I think, really does work. I mean, all it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive cost reduction approach, which just happens to, you know, re- rely on natural forces. And, and not surprisingly, OK, your, your yields may go down 
slightly in the short term, but your costs go down massively and if you do it properly. And that's, that's why it makes sense. And more and more people go out, need to go out and see their neighbours who are doing it. And I think it'll become very infectious that way. So you're saving money on fertilisers, things that you add to the soil, those pesticides. I mean, where do the cost savings come in, apart from not having to buy a bigger tractor? Well, I think that's, that's one of the main things, is you not having to buy a bigger tractor. In fact, getting rid of the bigger tractor and trying to find a smaller one. In fact, the price of small tractors is, is disproportionately <laughs> high at the moment. But, but people, big farmers, are telling me that their, their, their reduction in power is phenomenal. And so that's probably the biggest short-term cost saving. Um, but you're right, you, you're, you're reducing your fertiliser costs. You're reducing... I mean, I've got a friend who had his first year of following you know, proper regenerative practices last year, and he put in place an early warning system for, for fungal attack. It was quite, you know, it was potentially quite a bad year for fungus last year. We had that sort of wet spring and early summer. Um, and the early warning system, which cost him, said that he never had to put fungicides on. So his fungicide bill was zero. And that would never have happened in the past. I mean, whether that's regenerative, I'd say that's probably to do with, you know, high-tech farming. Um, so his fungicide bill was, was way down. His, no, no pesticides at all. And um, fertiliser bill will be sinking as, as his soil fertility builds. So it's, it's improving our soil quality. It's presumably improving the balance of biodiversity because... Um, if, and it has a slightly slower feel to it, you know, it might be a lame person's term, but, you know, so we've got some wild margins and we've got more pollinators and we've got a better balance. Where does some of the tech innovation sit in that? Because, you know, we spend quite a lot of time talking to people who are innovating and trying to grow crops with very little water use, for example, or, or thinking about different ways of farming, vertical farming, growing upwards instead of outwards. Where does innovations fit in this wider, regenerative, more kind of in harmony with nature approach? Well, I think it. I think regenerative farming, whilst there are many aspects of it which might have been recognised by our forefathers, um, examples like the one I just gave on on you know avoiding fungicides, you know rely on on very very high tech you know sensory equipment that that can actually detect or you know that can measure. Um, you know AI systems which actually sort of learn along the way when when we need to apply things or whether we need to apply them. So I think so I think monitoring. Of course, that then takes you into vertical farming. I mean, I'm I'm still I, I'm still a doubter as to how much um, we will be producing vertically in the future. I mean, I'm quite convinced that we will be producing some, and then there are there are areas where it makes complete sense to me. But the one thing I am very clear about, having visited vertical farms, is that the the the, the high-tech equipment they're using. I mean, I'm involved with a vertical farm in America where the, the life of a plant is measured every half second. And so the ability to do that, if one could take that technology and put it into, into the fields, maybe in a more robust form and maybe quite less, slightly less sensitive, <laughs> you know, could, could, could produce extraordinary results. You know, so, I mean, so much waste. We were talking about waste a little bit earlier, but so much waste. I mean, we know so much fertiliser is put on that then just washes into the watercourses. But there is so much waste about what we what we are doing that if we had more data and we could use that data, because I think that's been one of the problems is that farmers have been sold sort of data measuring equipment, but they haven't been told what to do with it. And so the ability to sort of take that data and then actually turn it into a usable form, to me, that's the sort of first wave before we invest in expensive robots that do all the work for us. Mm, yeah. So really understanding some of the, the, the benefits of tech 
alongside a system that that feels quite low-tech in some ways so it's that perfect combination isn't it really do you do you do you have much hope for the life of soil because we hear dire warnings about how few harvests we have left on the planet and how badly eroded of nutrients and, and you know uh, depleted of nutrients our our soil is do you have much hope for the for the life of the soil i mean have we got enough people doing the right things quickly enough well we certainly haven't got enough people doing the right things at the moment and i don't know how much longer we've got but we do seem to the conversation seems to be getting more and more energetic and so i'm an optimist anyway i have to be doing what i do as an entrepreneur so I, I am optimistic. I'm certainly optimistic that, that soil can regenerate very quickly. You know, we were, we were told that soil naturally, you know, only is created at, a, at an incredibly slow rate. But that's not the case. We, we, you know, we can see on our own farm here that the soil is in much better shape than it was a few years ago. I mean, we, we haven't spent a fortune on testing every aspect of it. But just simple things like driving a tractor across it and realising that you can go much faster because... Um, just because it's in better nick and you can go in a, in, a, in a higher gear, which, of course, saves you money in, as, as well. So we know that. We know that the, the yields are improving already. And, and as I say, we've been farming here organically for 25 years, but I would say that probably for the first 15 years of that, our soil got worse. And it's only in the last 10, maybe even in the last five, that it, it has, been, has got noticeably better. Why and do you think it was? Because I think... I, I, it, my point is that I think just going organic and um doesn't necessarily solve the problem i think you know you i mean obviously if you if you say right we're going to put the whole lot down to a grazing system and we're going to let the soil recover then that would have been very different but we, we instead we were encouraged in the arable east that we could put in you know clover lays for two or three years and then we could sort of pretty well carry on as we carried on before grow grow wheat crops and and you know longer rotations of of cash crops and what we found was you know after a clover lay of of, of 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 a couple of years yes you could probably get a pretty feeble wheat crop but your land was somehow so shot to pieces that it just didn't really perform it it produced you know some very healthy weed crops but the but the 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 the, the cereals really didn't thrive in it and we were growing we were growing the same varieties as we had grown before um, supposedly they had been selected for, for performing better in organic systems but you know they, they were these sort of thoroughbreds that had been bred to do well in a chemical farming system and you know we don't grow those crops anymore we grow we now grow um, you know heritage grains that 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 predated the, the you yeah. know the sort of intensive chemical farming era and they seem to do much better so there are all sorts of reasons why I think our soil could be doing better I mean I'm not a soil scientist I mean I wish I was and, and I wish there were more of them about but you know it makes sense to me that it could be doing better and that the soils can regenerate really quite quickly and you get into a virtuous circle where if you're doing the right thing the soil regenerates at a faster rate every year and you, and you know I've seen enough farms where that's happened to believe that it's perfectly possible. And is that where rewilding comes in because I know people have you know there's been lots and we, obviously we've spoken to to, to, to Izzy and Charlie at NEP and we've had lots of conversations about rewilding and, and I think it's you know it appeals to people in a in a sort of kind of slightly an emotive way I think it feels like you're getting back to something that was natural but there's also a benefit in having small amounts of rewilding to do just what you said to to regenerate soil to improve you know 
land life and usage and things. So is there a place for, 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 for rewilding in the longer scale regenerative agricultural model or is it something that will only ever be you know in those in, you know a, a nice to have or a pop-up or you know something that, that campaigners will be campaigning for i don't think any of these things are just nice to have you know i think some people still believe that biodiversity is a nice thing to have when we've got everything else right it wouldn't it be nice to leave some space for biodiversity we we now know that's not the case for you know for the for, for the survival of the human species we need biodiversity so we need to work out how we produce enough food for ourselves without compromising every other species. And we also know, even in Britain and certainly around the rest of the world, that other species don't fit in very well with farming systems. And so we need to farm on a lot less land. So that's where rewilding comes in, and more importantly in the rest of the world, leaving a lot of spaces wild in the first place. Yeah. But I, I, I think, you know, here, I mean, on our little few hundred acres here in Suffolk you know our mission we we have sort of four legs to what we're doing one is farming in hand with nature which is where we are organic why we're organic but we also leave space for nature so we have got even on a few hundred acres we have got quite large areas of, of wilding land and wilding hedgerows and and um, so you know the third point is that we want to produce food for our friends and neighbours, we say, but and we can define that as widely or as narrowly as, as we like. But mostly, you know, we, we want to food, produce food for local supply chains. And fourth, we want to create great jobs in the countryside. Um, and I believe very firmly in that because I grew up in a farming, a farming business, which, which, you know, was all about creating jobs. My father believed that, that you know, he had a responsibility to employ as many people as, as, as he could. Now, there are probably fewer people who actually want to work in agriculture now, but pretty well everybody I, I knew growing up with had their first job on a farm. And there are lots of people who find it difficult to work elsewhere that, you know, farming does and, and, and working outside does create a sort of a, a, a particular environment for all sorts of people who might be described, well, certainly were described as eccentric in, in my day. And, um, you know, they would probably be given a more sort of scientific label now. But, but you know, I, I, I think that you can do that without saying I'm a rewilding farm or a regenerative farm. I, mean, I think you can do all of those things on one farm. Now, NEP have, done, have gone down one particular route. They're creating some fabulous jobs in the countryside. They're still producing food, but their emphasis is on, yeah. on rewilding. Our emphasis here is perhaps more on producing food, but I don't think that we are um, at odds with each other. And, I mean, one of the areas is actually in Izzy's book, she talks about the first... 10 years so so having a sort of 10 year rewilding lay or whatever you want to call it and talking to, to to nature conservation experts they feel that that's one of the most important phases of of a of rewilding so it would be possible to rest the soil you know had we done that rather than go organic in the first 10 years had we, had we just let the farm rest i think it would have been much more productive in the following 10 years <laughs> nature would have got a head start and then we would have to have found a way of returning that land to, to food production. It probably would have been quite painful because there would probably have been a lot of biodiversity there which probably didn't like that. But then you, you might have lots of neighbours who are going through the same phase. So one might imagine huge, much larger areas than rewilding Britain are talking about that are in a sort of a shorter term rewilding phase, which is all around soil regeneration as well. And this is where I sort of get sort of rather annoyed with people who get very cross about things like solar farms. I mean, solar farms, 
are, are only doing what the rest of us are doing. They're harvesting the sun's rays. You know, most wheat grown in this country now is being, is being grown to feed to animals. I don't know about most, but a lot of it is being grown to feed to animals that weren't designed to, to, designed to eat grain. So all we're really doing is growing a crop to harvest the sun. What's wrong with doing that more efficiently by putting a solar panel on the land for 25 years, letting the soil underneath it harbour plenty of biodiversity, which is what happens on a modern solar farm, and also regenerating the soil? Mm. You know, I mean, I'd say that's probably more responsible farming than growing wheat for animals that weren't meant to eat eat grain in the first place. It certainly sounds pretty convincing to me. I mean, the, the... The slight problem in that argument is that we then probably have to stop eating the animals, but but I think there'll be a lot of people who are saying that we need to do less of that anyway, and it is a deeply inefficient way of producing food, as we know. So perhaps, you know, well, slightly I would, less I, grain, slightly fewer animals, a few more solar farms. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it needs must up to a point. I mean, I'm, I'm not for telling people what they should eat, but I think I'm for telling people what's good for them. Mm. And... You, you know, it just happens to be that what is we know to be good for, for us and for our health also happens to be pretty good for the planet, and both are in poor states at the moment, talking across the whole, the whole population. So eating a bit less meat, and it, it's low-quality meat, so, it's, you know, it's not, it's not sort of providing us with essential nutrients that we can't get elsewhere. You know, if people want to carry on eating that, then... then that's fine by me, but it probably needs to go up in price. And, and if the market does that because it gets harder and harder to do that, then I don't have a particular problem with that. And by the way, you know, we've talked a little bit about, about new technologies. You know, producing that sort of meat in a, in a laboratory down the line, you know, is going to happen. And I don't yeah. have a problem. At the moment, it's more expensive than producing it um, supposedly naturally. I, I, I find intensive poultry production pretty unnatural and pretty scary. And my friends in... In, in medicine say it's 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 rather strange that the pandemic didn't come from a chicken farm and instead came from apparently from a incursion with sort of bats but i mean you know it's it's only a matter of time before very very intensive poultry production around the world is going to cause a major pandemic if it hasn't already so you know making creating an alternative to that cheap white meat in the laboratory seems eminently sensible to me. Yeah, and we all know that cheap food is a is a misnomer, really, and that there is no such thing as cheap food. Um, and and as we said earlier, it's about distribution and access as much as the quality of the ingredient to start with. So, um, so, William, what's your what would be your call out to either to to an individual who was listening or to somebody who was responsible for some of those policy, political, financial decisions? So. What are the kind of things that we should and could be doing, listening to what you've been saying? Some seem obvious to me, but if you had a call out to make, what would it be? Well, we've talked a bit about about policymakers, and and you know, as I say, I think the policymakers are pretty clear now about what needs to happen. And you know, I do believe in markets. I'm a business person. I, I'm I'm also very aware that markets, improperly regulated, can do all sorts of awful things. So I'm not a sort of tooth and claw capitalists. I, d- I do believe that, you know, a, 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 a well-positioned regulatory authority at the top is all important. But markets, businesses, you know, the small battalions that actually make the world go round respond very well to, to, to clear signals. 
And, you know, those signals can either be in the form of regulation or they can be in the, you know, it's sticks and carrots. So, you know, getting the incentive structures right um, are all important. Uh, before we started talking, I was going through the accounts on, on the farm and I was looking at the feed-in tariffs that, uh, that, that we get for, for the solar panels that we put up on the farm over the, over the years and the days when we were actually paid to put them up. And I was looking at one thinking, gosh, that's a lot of money coming in. Of course, it was the first panel that we put up. And I have to say, it's rather an embarrassing sum of money for rather a small panel. Of course, the panels at the time were rather expensive. I've forgotten that. But I look at it and I look at, you know, it, 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 was, producing, it was producing about the same amount as, of energy as one that is now paying me about a fifth of the same amount. But it cost me much. But that's because people like me wanted to stick our neck out and, and, and put up solar panels. We brought the prices down, we encouraged our neighbours to do it. And, you know, there's no longer a debate about whether renewables are a good idea. It's all around, you know, what are the economics of it? Well, actually, they're pretty strong at the moment. So I think that's what, what we need to do. We just need to get the, we need to get the incentives right. They don't need to be hugely, hugely over generous and, and, you know, then causing some sort of scandal. But we need to get the incentives right. Make sure there aren't any perverse incentives to carry on doing stupid stuff. Hmm. No perverse incentives to carry on doing stupid stuff. That's a long title of the podcast, but would be a brilliant one. <laughs> Thank you, Wynne. It's been absolutely fascinating and really fabulous to meet you. And uh, a tiny peek around the farm would be wonderful if we could manage it. Definitely. We can do that now. Thank you. William, we haven't given up being an entrepreneur and a salesman have you so I'm standing here in your beautiful shop well it is beautiful I mean it's hot isn't it but it is beautiful it's a very beautiful hut and behind you are bags of flour tell me tell me about the flour the flour is um, milled on the farm it's grown on the, the grain is milled uh, grown on the farm we're increasingly using grains that are um, older more traditional varieties which have well haven't been lost because they've been found but we've had to sort of multiply up the quantities um, so that we can actually have enough to, to sell commercially. And we're just getting to that level now where we've got enough to put in the shop. Um, but we're growing sort of spelt and, and, and rye. Um, the wheats are, 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 you know, things like YQ, from, um, which were originally developed by Martin Wolf at, at Wakelands, um, which is a, a, a population um, of different types of wheat. So the Y is the yielding wheats and the Q are the... Uh, are the quality wheats and so there are I think there's sort of 20 original uh, wheat varieties not actually old wheat varieties more modern wheat varieties but they're all growing together as a population and so if one does well in one year and another does not so well you've still got something left and so they're they're sort of evolving to to um, suit the conditions on the particular field but in fact we're now moving into much older varieties so we're growing we're growing populations of wheats that were grown in med medieval times um, of course we don't know but um, anecdotally we feel they've got much better flavour because we've completely forgotten that wheat could actually have a flavour at all and we also suspect and there will be research coming down the line that they, they contain many more nutrients than modern wheats which really just have been bred for performing well under the chemical system that prevails. And you're growing the wheat differently as well aren't you you were telling me that you're actually growing your your your, your wheat next to next to beans well we're growing cereals with beans um, again that's part of a regenerative farming system so so having multiple crops which complement each other 
And we're able to do that because we can clean, we, we, you know, the quantities are relatively low. Um, and we've got the cleaning equipment, which most farms used to have, but most of them have, have got rid of. And so we can separate the beans from the, from the wheat after they're harvested. So, yes, that, that's a, we think that's a much more beneficial um, way of, of, of growing crops. Um, and, and, you know, we are growing them in a regenerative system as well. Um, we're, we're looking for varieties that perhaps don't need as many nutrients. They, they perform well on a less fertile soil. So, the, you know, the criticism that regenerative farming is inevitably going to have lower yields, we just don't know. You know, we, 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 have, been growing, we have been growing more and more um, selected varieties of grains which perform well in a particular system. And we just haven't tested for all the other things that we could be doing, which are probably much more efficient and will produce perhaps just as good yields, but using fewer resources. Mm. And are you then able to keep some of that seed back for the following year yeah. as well? So you've yes. actually got this a whole cycle. Yes, absolutely. Well, we've got to do that. And a lot of these seeds, I, I mean, I you know, jokingly say, you know, some of them probably were, there were only a few grains left which were found in great-grandfather's turnips when, his, when they went to the charity shop or whatever, but they've been multiplied up from tiny quantities. And we're just at the stage, I mean, our, our Mike, our farm manager, was able to buy some 15 kilo bags of seed from, from one of these multipliers and we're just getting to the point now where we've got sort of commercial crops, tiny commercial crops. Really exciting. Really exciting. I mean, we've got a crop, we'll just go and have a look at it now, but we've got a, a, a crop of wheat called April Bearded Wheat and we grew it actually two years ago, but um, everyone was so excited by it, they all looked at it and we had such a small quantity that by the time we came to harvest it, most of it had been stepped on, so we actually didn't get very much. We've got just <laughs> enough to plant again, so it's growing again this year and hopefully there'll be more. But it's, it's, it's April because it's, it, it, it can be drilled in, in April, which is rather late for a spring wheat. Um, it's bearded because it's got horns on it like a barley, which is unusual for a wheat. Um, and so, you know, we think that this variety was kept for, for, for years like we get more and more of now where, you, you, you know, you have a very wet winter, which we, we, we weren't used to in Suffolk. And so you have this wet winter, which then moves straight into a sort of dry spring and summer. And it's fine, you find it very difficult to actually find the perfect conditions to, to drill a, a, a spring crop. And so you finally get this opportunity in, in April to get it in. And it's, it's too late for... The conventional wheats that people have been using in spring wheats, but but April bearded seems to grow. And my hunch is that it's it's like the it, we haven't tested um, what, what what protein it's got in it, but we I suspect it's a bit like the Canadian wheats. So of course they go in after the frost has gone, and they they're you know they're called hundred day wheats. They grow very very quickly to maturity, and that's why they're so popular because they are very strong bread wheats. Yeah. So who knows, the April bearded wheat might be an ancient variety of strong bread wheat and we didn't ever need to go to the Canadian prairies to find it after all. But I'll let you know about that. <laughs> we'll test the bread. My thanks to our guest, William Kendall, to Beth, our producer, and Jim, our executive producer. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Please get in touch if you like what you hear. Tweet us or follow us on Instagram. We always welcome your suggestions. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.